0: Glory to our God who has given us life beyond the grave. If that don't get you fired up, your heart ain't beating. Amen. Good morning to you. I'm Jeff Patton. I'm one of the teaching pastors. If you're new with us, and we have two of us. Uh, Monty was the other guy up here. So it's good to have you with us. And if you would, turn to the book of Ephesians. We are now officially back. Uh, in the book of Ephesians, we took a break uh, through Advent and through the first few weeks of the year to address some topical issues that we wanted to with our church. But our lifeline for sure at Fellowship Bible Church is peach, uh, not preaching through, uh, <laughs> preaching. That's a Preaching and teaching, the synonym for that is peaching, right? Uh, through the book of Ephesians. We have finished, as if you've been here with us, the first three chapters of Ephesians. And in the coming months, we will teach through, starting next week, chapters four through six. But what we thought was that it would be very helpful, is since we've been out of Ephesians so long, to take a look back at where we've been and and summarize that, if you would, and then take a glance forward to where we're heading Uh, So we can all look forward to that together. It is certainly uh, a big context of a book. A survey of a book is so helpful as you dive down into it to know that. So let's do that. As a reminder uh, about this book of Ephesians, our teaching series was entitled Life and Light, and more on that later. But the book of Ephesians is a unique book, unique in the sense Uh, That, uh, for example, Galatians was written to solve a problem. There was bad theology coming in from the Judaizers, and Paul wrote that letter to address that issue. Ephesians really has no issues. It's just it's just doctrine and exhortation of our lives. Very unique. Matter of fact, Spurgeon wrote of the uniqueness: the book of Ephesians is the queen of all epistles. That's high praise from Spurgeon. F.F. Bruce says, Our spiritual center of gravity is too low, too human, too temporal, too material, too earthly, and too self-centered. You got to say amen to that, right? Ephesians is written to challenge and to change our center of gravity. Paul writes to the church in order to help things see earthly circumstances and light of heavenly realities. And if we don't need that, we don't need anything. The bottom line is we need it. Here's some quick hitting truths if you would about the city of Ephesus where the Ephesian church was planted by Paul. It was uh, uh, it was located on the western shore of, the, of what we know now today as modern day Turkey. And it ranked with Rome as one of the top cities in the known world 25 years after Christ was resurrected. It had about 250,000 people, and it was named after Queen Ephesia. Secondly, you've heard it said, all roads lead to Rome. Well, during that time of the day, there was uh, another phrase uh, was also said, all roads lead from Ephesus because it was the key transportation site or hub of all of Asia Asia Minor. There was a very advanced city. They had a 24,000-seat amphitheater. They had a medical school that trained doctors and sent them all over the known world, so it was uh, advanced in that way. Religiously, it was polytheistic in its worship of many gods, which is very typical. The chief religion by far was the worship of Artemis. Uh, She was called Artemis uh, by the Greeks and Diana by the Romans. Uh, Maybe the first bobbleheads ever made were made of her. And uh, you can go read, I would encourage you this week to read chapters 18 through 20 in the book of Acts. Because you sh- it shows us this, this wild, untamed place in some sense that the apostle Paul walked into. But they made these little bobbleheads of her and sold it. Uh, there was a temple which, where she was worshipped and uh, it was four times larger than the Greek pantheon. It was known as the one of the seven wonders of the world. Also in the city of Ephesus, magic was king. In some ways, it was the epicenter of magic and superstition and for sorcery. It was a mess. In that mess believe it or not, was a Jewish synagogue. But it, it wasn't the most orthodox Jewish synagogue ever on the face of the earth. It was led by a guy named Sceva, I believe that's how he pronounced it. He was a Jewish high priest who was actually an exorcist. This is the world that Paul walked into. Now, what we can see from that is this. A lot of things have changed since Paul planted the church in the city of Ephesus. But one thing has not changed. That man has looked for God in all the wrong places. But believe me, he has looked for God. And he was doing that there as well. As Blaise Pascal tells us, there's a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every person which cannot be filled by any created thing but only by God the Creator made known through Christ. And that's where Paul walks into the scene there in Ephesus. As I said, Paul was the author. In Acts 18, about A.D. 52, tells us Paul visited the city of Ephesus for the first time, along with Priscilla and Aquila, went straight to the Jewish synagogue, and began to teach there as he typically did in every city that he visited. He then left, returned a year later, and stayed for three years. You can read all of that in Acts 19. And after these three years, he left, and we can see in Acts 20, one of the most powerful, gut-wrenching departures in all of scriptures. As Paul says his forever goodbye to the Ephesian elders who he had invested his very life into Oh, my, how he loved these men. And that passage says they wept and they fell on one another. Listen to these words. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken that they would not see his face again. And sure enough, a few years later, the apostle Paul was beheaded in Rome for the message of Christ. Paul also wrote this letter to the church in Ephesus and surrounding churches after his departure, as as I mentioned there. And obviously before his death, obviously you can't write before you die, you know, if you're dead. Man, I'm smarter than I thought I was. But uh, Monty's nodding his head. Thank you, Monty. That was encouraging. Uh, I don't know why that came out, but uh, <laughs> it was about A.D. Uh, 60 or 62, and it was during his first Roman imprisonment, pr- imprisonment, and here's the deal. He also wrote not only Ephesians, but he wrote Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. That's why these four books, if you didn't know, are called the Prison Epistles, And I just want us to stop a minute because if you're like me, one of the things that can get you down quickly is circumstances. Can it not? And here God, in his great kindness, allowed the circumstance of Paul to be in prison so that he could write these forever books of Scripture. Paul saw that more than the average Joe That's an area that I need to grow in, and I'm guessing you do as well. As I mentioned earlier, we are calling our teaching through this book, Life and Light. The reason is that the book really splits up nicely. Uh, Maybe uh, off the top of my mind, I can't think of a book of Scripture that just splits up this beautifully. Chapters 1 through 3 are life because they're about God raising his people from spiritual death to life through the shed blood of Christ and them trusting in the shed blood of Christ for their salvation. Paul makes it clear there is no life, no eternal life unless one is in Christ. And to double down on that Paul, on that thought, Paul uses the phrase in Christ 27 times in the book. Of Ephesians, And in chapter 1 through 3, Paul really answers these crucial but basic life-changing questions if you get the right answers to them. And they are who they are. I can't find them. Where in the world do they go? Monty. Oh, here they are. Who are we? Thought Monty stole them from me. Whose are we and how? What connects us together as followers of Christ? You answer those three questions biblically, you got a chance to springboard off of that into Christ-like living. And that's exactly what chapters 4 through 6 talk about. Matter of fact, right between between chapter 3 and at the start of chapter 4, 4 1 says this, I therefore, which indicates what Paul is really saying that in light of everything I have told you in chapters 1 through 3, this is now how you should live. Some people have called chapters 1 through 3 doctrine and chapters 4 through 6 duty. This morning I have entitled in your notes this chapters 1 through 3, the gospel story. In chapters 4 through 6, how the gospel story transforms our story. And so let's look at these chapters quickly. Life, the gospel story there in your outlines, chapters 1 through 3. In the first chapters I entitled, uh, chapter 1, just the overview title would be Trophies of Grace. In the opening lines of Ephesians, Paul addresses the members of Ephesus Fellowship Bible Church. That was its literal name there. (laughs) And he addresses them with the word saints. It's not because they've attained some moral uh, superiority, but because God has declared them. And you, or if you are a believer in Christ, as holy and righteous in Christ. It is what God calls his people, this term saints. And although it's certainly a, it can be used as a personal name for one who is in Christ, the primary meaning and literal meaning here is that it is for the church as a whole. The word, Paul never in scripture uses the word saint singular, he always uses it in plural, meaning that this is what God calls his people. The church, Paul always used the plural, no doubt. We are saints only as members of a holy community. And in this truth, it communicates to us, honestly, this is how you and I are to view each other. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not perfect, and I know you're not perfect, and if there's anybody here that thinks they're perfect, that in itself shows you that you're not perfect, right? So there's, there's not, we're not living in fantasy land. We're talking about positional truth, who God declares you are in Christ, and what you and I need to do, instead of looking at that person as a, a person that gets on my nerves Sometimes we treat people like they're gnats, right? Get away. I don't want to get beaten close to you. They get on. We look at them through the lens of the gospel that says they are brothers and sisters in Christ, fellow saints, just as sinful as I am, and vice versa. Here's what God wants to do as He grows us in Christ. He wants to make us more like who we have been declared to be in Christ. God calls the unfaithful, and then what he does, he works an unfaithful's life in such a way that they become the what? Faithful. He doesn't call faithful because faithful people in their own minds don't need Christ. Verses 3 through 14, Paul then lays out the blessings we have in Christ, the privileges we have in Christ, or what God has done for us in Christ. Verse 3, there's an eruption of praise to God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. And then he begins to list these. Stay with me here. He chose us before the foundation of the world. He adopted us as his children. We are now family. Verse 6, how did he do this? Verse 6 tells us, to the praise of his glorious grace. He redeemed us. He paid a ransom price to God through his own shed blood to appease his holy wrath. He forgave all our sins. We, We sometimes... Or maybe a lot of times, just read over the, okay, my sins are forgiven. Folks, that needs to stun us. Past, present, and future, gone. How does he forgive our sins? According to his grace that he lavishes upon us. We are his inheritance, he tells us. Or put it another way, in Christ, we too have been claimed as God's own Possession. Paul wants the Ephesians to know. Paul wants us to know that God wants them, and he wants them like it's not like, I can't believe i got to bring this person in my family. No, he wants them, and he wants them to feel assured of his gracious love that he wants us for himself. Here's how Peter put it in 1 Peter 2.9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people before his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Paul goes on listing these spiritual blessings. Says he sealed us with his Holy Spirit which signifies that he owns us, and once God owns us, he cannot disown us. The sealing of the Holy Spirit, one writer said, becomes the blessed assurance that those who are sealed will indeed be with God in Christ in the next world. Therefore, if we have trusted in Christ for salvation, we can each say with certainty, I am completely forgiven, and fully pleasing to God, not because of human effort, not because of our performance that Monty mentioned talking about search for significance, not because we're actually perfect, our best efforts are filthy rags, but because we are trophies of his grace. Amen and amen. Chapter 2. The turning point in all of history but God. If you have your Bibles, open to chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out our desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. My goodness. Here God tells us both the truth about him and about us. I don't know if you know this or not, but I recently looked it up. There are 31 different terms that the scriptures talk about to describe the sinfulness and depravity of human beings. And that's exactly where Paul starts. Not a long list, but a list long enough to know that we certainly are sinful in verses 1 through 3. We'll never get to the bottom of our sinfulness Because if our forgiveness depends on our full knowledge of our sins, you and I would all perish. These first three verses are clear and concise so that we, or the readers at the time, or whoever reads Ephesians, know that any moral improvement on our part is simply and grossly insufficient to even remotely help us. And the more you and I get that, and part of that is maturity, part of that takes time, I can tell you from experience, there was a day, as I've told my story, I was as sinful as you could get, according to the world's standards, not only God's standards. And then I came to Christ, and within a few years, became self-righteous, and would look at others and think, how could they do that? Oh, my. The Christian life, if anything, is humbling because you become more and more and more aware. He's speaking about me. And as that awareness comes, it can feel overwhelming without the words, but God, which make it glorious. The more you and I get this, the more verse 4 will stun us. Verse 4 says, but God, yes, the turning point in all of history. One writer said the most beautiful words ever written because without them we are left hopeless. I want you to know that God is the subject here. God is the one acting alone, And who is God? This text tells us. He is rich in mercy, limitless in his hesed love. He is full of loving kindness. He is full of goodliness. And this kind of mercy is always unmerited. Folks, there is no sin nor sinner outside the reach of God's mercy. And what Paul is doing here, he's stacking words Here, in an attempt to describe what is indescribable. And that is the great love of God through his son Christ for those people he saves. The love of God for sinners. I want to ask you a question. Obviously don't want you to answer out loud. Is that your view of God toward you. Is that your view of God toward you even on your worst day? Because if it's not, it's not biblical. You have bad days. I have bad days. We have horrific past. I've heard lots of your stories. Welcome to life on life's terms. And yet the God of the universe speaks to you in such a powerful and profound way about his love. It is literally life-changing. And that's why Paul wrote verses or chapters 4 through 6. We were dead, but now we're alive in the spiritual realm. God says when he calls a man to himself that you are mine forever. At the heart of this is our identity. We are now 100% identified with Christ in his death resurrection ascension and are now citizens in heaven even though we are still on earth and God is a wealthy God of grace he never runs out to those that were at one time under his wrath so we got the trophies of grace chapter one we have the turning point all of history but God chapter two and chapter three the reveal together is better Here, what Paul does, you may remember from our teaching, he reveals what he calls what is known as the mystery. Verse 6 says, The mystery is what the Gentiles are. They're fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise of Christ Jesus through the gospel. And you and I know this, if you know a little history. A no one in the history of the world hated each other more than Jews and Gentiles. And now Paul reveals that this great news of salvation, this gospel story, is for both the Jew and the Gentile. Look, that is shocking at that time of history. The reason is Paul knows, he's talking about this, he knows that God wants unity in his church. matter of fact, he's going to talk a lot about that in chapter 4. If you remember, this is exactly why Paul is in prison in Rome because he was preaching this message of unity that both the Jew and the Gentile were equally saved, equally loved, and come to God through the same way, and that's through Christ. Paul didn't understand this message of the mystery He got struck down on the road to Damascus. Why? Because he was going around saying, no, Gentiles aren't a part of this thing. And he got struck down. So, look, it was hard for Paul to understand that. And it was a hard message for him to sell, particularly to the Jews at that time. Paul lived the last six years of his life in prison over his commitment to that message or the mystery. Jew and Gentiles are one body. They're the same. They're brothers and sisters in Christ. They have a double union, one with Christ and one with each other. And look, that's got to speak volumes to us, does it not? No matter race, no matter background, no matter anything, If a person in Christ, they are your brother and sister and they got there the same way you did and that God chose them and forgave them because they're sinful and so are you. It's a great lens to look at people through because if we look through people through this worldly lens that says preferences, what I like, what I don't like, what they look like, where they work, where they... All those lenses we filter our view of others is worldly and fleshly. Paul says to the Jews and the Gentiles, here's a new pair of glasses. They're called gospel glasses. And we're going to look through those and see one another is equally sinful and equally blessed with the mercy of God. That changes everything. (laughs) So together... I'll put it this way. It's for show better. And then lastly, in Ephesians, in Ephesians 1, 15 through 23, there's a prayer. In Ephesians 3, 14 through 21, there's another prayer. And here's what these two prayers do. They are models for you and I. You, you were doing this prayer and fasting thing, right? Are you supposed to be? And I'm assuming you are, believing the best. When you don't know what to pray, if you're at loss at words, go back to these texts in Ephesians because it is profound praying that we should be praying our guts out for ourselves and others. And that is this, that we would know who we are in Christ and that we would understand and comprehend the great love of God for us. Paul prays. That you would know, that you would understand, that the abstract love of God would become real and personal. The height of it, the depth of it, the length of it, the width of it, that you would know it so it in turn transforms you. If the love of God is just abstract, it's a nice little thought, it's like a Hallmark card. Ain't nobody going to change with that. But when it becomes very personal, he knows everything you and I have done. And he says, you're mine. He didn't only say you're mine. He actually bled and died so that you would be his. Folks, ain't nobody loved me and you like that. And the other thing is this. Think about who the author was. When you see these blessings in Christ, when you see God's great mercy, when you see that he's praying that you would understand the blessings in Christ and the great mercy of God to sinners, I mean, that's what he's crying out in these prayers for. You got to go back to the author because the author is Paul, the most dangerous enemy of Christianity. One who got his identity and worth from his power, from his education, from his ability to make things happen. He was a Pharisee of all Pharisees, a murderer. He was putting people in jail. He's torturing Christians because they believe in Christ. He's raging and he's approving of all of this. He is on the war path against Christ and God's mercy comes upon him. And outside of Jesus Christ, he became the greatest promoter of Christianity after his conversion. I don't know about you, but I have struggled with shame. and My guess is there's not a person in here you're ashamed of things you have done. And I've often thought, With Paul, how could he do this without the shame of his past destroying him? Shame will destroy your walk with Christ. How could God love Paul in spite of all that he's done? How could mentally and emotionally Paul do ministry? How can you use me? Those are questions that we wrestle with with believers, is it not? The answer he gives us in chapters 1, 2, and 3. The power of the gospel. The gospel is so powerful. Paul says, I want to tell you how it's transformed my mind, my heart, and ultimately my life. And it's so powerful that when Paul was beheaded and entered eternity, the same people that he had killed and tortured were there to welcome him. That's the gospel. So we got life, the gospel story. I want to finish up quickly here with light. How the gospel story transforms our story, chapters 4 through 6. After this sort of good amount of reminding here of where we've been. I just want to glance. I just want us to move forward just a little bit of what's coming. Chapter 4 is all about walking in unity. And we all know this. There's a, there's a big difference between what? Between knowing something and doing something. Because knowing without doing is really not knowing at all from a biblical perspective. To know and not to do is certainly to not know at all. So in chapter 4, Paul wants to lay out what it looks like very practically for God's people to be unified in Christ so as to bring about their spiritual growth and their maturity in Christ's likeness. Verse 4-1, I therefore, he says, a prisoner for the Lord, literally <laughs> and spiritually Urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling, worthy of all that I told you about that God did for you, to which you have been called, which means we have to have an attitude of humility, gentleness, patience, and listening to the Spirit of God speak to us through His Word. Very practical help here in how it means and how to deal with conflict. Chapter 4. How do we deal with this emotion of anger? If you're living on the earth, one of your thoughts may be in some form or another, if it weren't for people, I'd be totally fine. Why is that? Because people together, long enough, there's going to be conflict. I'll tell you something else. We taught at marriage conferences for 18 years and experienced it for 35 and a half. Being married to my blessed Jenna Bean. Without conflict, there's no intimacy. And without healthy conflict, there's no intimacy. Paul's going to teach us about healthy conflict. How to fight fair and make up and become close in Christ. John Stott put it this way, probably the greatest tragedy of the church throughout its long and checkered history has been its constant tendency to conform to the prevailing culture instead of developing a Christian counterculture. The culture slams each other. The culture counsels each other. The culture shames each other. And we say, no, not in Christ. We have a counterculture that deals with conflict differently. Why? Because every person in Christ is a saint, is a brother or sister saved by the great mercy of God. They are precious to him. They are the apex of his creation. And then chapters 5, 1 through 6 9 is all about walking in love. Paul exhorts Christ's followers as a love child of God in Christ to imitate him by walking in self-sacrifice and love for one another. But here Paul is going to go really practical. Husbands and wives. He's going to talk about how, what does it look like for you to treat your spouse as a Christ follower. Children and parents. No problems there. Why would he speak on that? <laughs> Fathers with children. Employers and employees. And I'll just say this. If you don't need help in those areas there, you got to go back and do a self-awareness test. Okay? And then lastly, chapter 6, 10 through six twenty-four, Standing strong in war. I don't know about you, but when I'm interacting with others and I'm having conflict or have had conflict, the first thing I forget is that there is a spiritual realm. I'm thinking completely horizontal. I'm thinking, what's wrong with that person? (laughs) And nothing is wrong with me. That's usually how how the conflict starts. But Paul says something different. Matter of fact, at family life conferences for years, again, we use this phrase, your spouse is not your enemy. This is why. Look at Ephesians 6, 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Folks, I can assure you, just like I have to assure myself, one of the glorious, most glorious, beautiful, but hard truths is this. I am my greatest problem. And you are your greatest problem. And if I'll start there, And know that I'm having conflict, but there's a spiritual war going on around me. How do I recognize it? How do I fight it? How do I move through it? That's chapter 6, standing strong in war. How to fight the real enemy of our souls. So we asked the question this morning, so what? I think the best question I could come up with, are you ready for some genuine real life change? Because that is chapters four through six. Here's what Paul has attempted to do. He has attempted to melt your heart to the mercy from the mercy of God. in chapters one through three, change your heart, which in turn, a heart change changes your life. The goal of all biblical truth is to change. The goal of all biblical truth isn't just so you can be a smarter sinner. It's not just so you can answer trivial questions when you play Bible games at night. I know y'all were all killing the Bible games last night probably. But here's how G.K. Chesterton put it. Oh, Lord, guard us from being Christians who love to learn but hate to change. That's our goal moving forward in chapters 4 through 6. Lord, we have learned a lot, and now it's time for us to change. Guard us from being Christians who love to learn but hate to change. May we be all loving to change in the months to come. Take a minute and ponder that this morning. And maybe as you do, write down one or two things. Lord, I need to change in this area. Or, Lord, would you show me how I need to change in this area? Maybe take a minute and just just thank the Lord and praise the Lord for his unmerited and faithful love for you. Thank the Lord that, that he loves you. Just sit there and wallow in that. this morning let us pray together Lord Jesus we come before your throne of grace we come boldly not because we've arrived in some kind of spiritual elitism but we come boldly because of what you say you say that your throne of grace is open 24-7 to those who know you Tell us that you hear us. You tell us that you're always at the right hand of the Father praying for us, interceding on our behalf. You are writing our stories, you are conforming us to Christ, and we are we are grateful for that. We say, as your people, it is hard to believe. When it's too good to be true, it's too good, but not in this case. It is too good to be true, but it is true that you love us. We're grateful that you're a God of mercy, that you are slow to anger, that you are patient and kind in all that you do, all that you allow in our life. You, as the great living God, use it to make us chase hard after you. We are so grateful We pray as a church that we would look at each other as saints, as those that this precious shed blood of Christ, more precious than silver or gold, was was shed for our brothers and sisters in Christ. Give us new lenses, gospel lenses to look at and deal with and overlook and forgive and have healthy conflict with each other. Give us those. And in the months to come, show us how the power of the gospel changes. It changes us, it changes our relationships, it changes our purpose, it changes our identity, it changes our worth, our value. It changes us because our hearts are different and we see different. We pray you would do a great work in the months to come. We love you and everyone said, Amen.